Lisa, uh, it's so funny because I'm trying to start this naturally because we already had such a natural little banter. But um, you're just a lovely person. Like, do you think <laughs> you're a person? Wait, say that. I was laughing. You're a lovely person. Like you're just a, oh. you know, it's like, I think the thing about you is you're so damn, like you're so damn good at what you do. Like there's no doubt. Like, do you think you're good at what you do? Well, I hope so because it's the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> it's the only thing I've done. I um, got my PhD when I was 26 years old. I am 52 years old. I have done one thing for my entire career and certainly most of my life before even I got my PhD. So I, I hope I'm decent at it. Yeah, you're good. You're so good. And, and I like how you talk and I like the rhythm of your voice. Like it's very soothing. Do people tell you that as well? Yeah, I hear that a lot actually. And I think, wouldn't it be very funny if um, if somebody did like a, a satire or a comedy where there was a clinician or a psychologist who was like really, really capable and had like great things to say, but their voice was unbearable. <laughs> I think that would be really funny. I heard a podcast the other day, and I'm not going to mention the person's name, who was a guest and her, oh, I said her, I already assigned a gender, the voice of this person. Well, now I can't go back, but like this person's talking voice was so hard to listen to. Yeah. Like we had to turn it off. My wife's like, who is that? And I said who it is. And she was like really surprised. And I, I feel bad because I don't say negative things. Like, I feel like that's not nice. And I want to be nice. I always want to be nice. Well, because we're Midwesterners and, and we're, we don't, we don't talk bad about people, which I, I like about us. But it didn't feel good. Even when I said yeah. her voice was, but what you were saying is exactly right. You have wonderful cadence. Uh, you, you, you know what you're talking about, which is really great. And um, you, you're just, I, I just, I like, I like listening to you. I like reading the things you write. I've got my book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. This is the one you signed because I saw you. Was this one? Yes, it is the one I signed. It's in there. And there it is. Signed. Yeah. It's funny because you did. signed it to um, to Peter, which is weird. When you saw me, you didn't use my real name. Now it's my name. <laughs> I was like, did I make that mistake? And I wrote in there what I, something I truly mean, which is thank you for all that you do. Oh, you're very kind. And uh, I appreciate that. I, um, yeah, I want to do things. I'm getting older. Um, I don't usually share my age because it's not important. So I'm not going to, but I will because I should. And you're a therapist. So it's okay to be. And honest. I've already shared mine. So you did. Well, it's like, but we didn't make that agreement. Like we didn't. <laughs> so like I could set a boundary and not share my age. And that's just what you have to, you're not going to push me because that's nope, who you are. I am not. I am not. Everybody gets to make their own choices. Right. Right. But no, I turned 50, uh, just like a few weeks ago. And, um, I just, I was, I was also thinking about you, how young we both look and, um, you know, because there's some people who are in their fifties and, you know, they look like they're more in their fifties and we're, I think as we work around young people, maybe, um, or it's our skin regimen, mm -hmm. you, you have a skin regimen. I am, I'm a pretty um, committed user of retinase. I'm a big believer in science. Right. And um, they have the science. And so I've been um, using retinase for a long, long time. And I wear a lot of sunscreen and I use them only at night. And I feel they have been my friend. <laughs> this is good. That's helpful. We've, one of my goals with our conversation today is to ask you questions that you haven't been asked. Because you've been, you've been promote, like you've been on a lot of podcasts, right, Lisa? Yeah, no, and it's incredible. Um, 
how much this medium has expanded even between books. Like I, I published a book four years ago under pressure yeah. and I didn't do that many podcast interviews. And even in that time, it's, it's um, awesome. How many, yeah, I, got, um, I got that too. Oh, hold on. I want to, um, yeah, this is under pressure. Yep. I got your whole library. We're going to see this because you know, the thing about you, you, there are so many places where people can hear you talk about so many different topics related to under pressure and, um, also the emotional lives of teenagers and like you, I want to just start off. If anyone's listening this far into this, okay. You haven't already tuned out. Um, the emotional lives of teenagers is a great book. Mm-hmm. Like do you, of your books, how do you feel about the emotional lives of teenagers? Are you, well, are you happy? With I don't this know one? if, yeah, I'm happy with it, but I don't know if it feels like this to you, but like your books almost feel like your kids, you know, mm-hmm. like you, and, and so they, you know, they're different, but you, yeah. you don't love one more than you love another. At least that's not my experience, you know, and they yeah. all sort of fill different roles in my, you know, kind of intellectual life, my books do. Um, I am happy with this book. I'm um, sorry that it felt so necessary, right? I'm yeah. sorry that it came out um, in a context of an adolescent mental health crisis and really trying to help shape the discourse around that in maybe a more helpful way. Um, but I am happy with the book because I feel like I said what I wanted to say and when I said it when I wanted to say it, right? And yeah. I felt, and I think, and I don't know if you measure, you know, writing books this way, but I feel like in order to write a book, you have to feel like there's something that needs to be said and I'm the person who's going to try to say it. And and I feel like yeah. that was true for me with this book. Like we need to really have a broader conversation about what adolescent mental health is and how we maintain it that goes beyond like just trying to help kids be happy. That's not going to work. Yeah. And I feel like, um, you know, this is the only thing I know. Teenagers, I love them. I, you know, the work through the pandemic was extraordinary, incredibly hard, incredibly painful to see what teenagers were going through. And so I think in that way, I felt like, okay, I, I'm someone who can try to make this yeah. contribution at this time. I think you do such a great job with this book, with the emotional lives of teenagers, raising connected, capable, and compassionate adolescents. And I love the book. I love how you start off really just framing this. And and I'm not going to spend too much time digging into the book because I'm a firm believer. People can read the book. Like they're going to read it. They're going to go through it. The end of the book for parents who are watching this, because I get a lot of parents who are really into what I'm sharing. And, And I think for teenagers, for adolescents, like you should read this too. But I love how at the end of the book, you say, okay, here's how you can actually do these things. Yep. You know, and, I, and that was so important because you weren't just talking about it. Sometimes there will be books that talk about issues and don't really give you practical, actionable yeah. information. So just as a preview of what we're doing during this podcast is we've got a Q&A. I, I don't, Lisa, you don't know this, but I've got some, some Q&A, some college-related Q&A oh, because I want to really give listeners things that they can use, actionable steps um, to deal with common problems that I know you've dealt with while working with your patients. So I love that you're like, I love you so much knowledge. There's so much that I want to share, but I want people to know at the end of this book, there's all this wonderful, actionable information. But then the the beginning of the book, I love how you set it up. Like if some people aren't good readers, just read like the first three pages right? Just read the first three pages, then put it on your nightstand. And it looks like you're in touch with teenagers. Because, <laughs> like really the, just the, the introduction is so wonderful. And I have a question that is really a softball question. So Lisa, do you feel it's better for a teenager 
to be happy or for a teenager to be sad? What's better? Oh, well, so I think the question is like what the yardstick is, right? Like better for what? Um, It's more fun to be happy. So if you're trying to have fun, it's better to be happy. If you're trying to grow and get to know oneself, it's probably better to be sad. That it's in the context of negative emotions that um, we expand our capacities, we develop our self-awareness, we cultivate our empathy for others. Um, so I think it's it's what you're trying to be better at. So when it comes to comfortable versus uncomfortable, what percentage, if you were to put together a magic potion, an adolescent mm-hmm. potion of percentage comfortable percentage uncomfortable, what would be your magic formula? I love your questions. They're so different and really fun questions. Um, Okay. So we have to like pull back the lens a little. Harlan, there's an element of baseline discomfort that comes with being a teenager. Like there's some, there's some of this that is, you know, already baked in. Um, Being a teenager is hugely hard. There's so much change happening, change and stress you know, change equals stress. So there's a lot of discomfort that's going to show up on the scene, no matter what we do. I think in terms of um, comfort to discomfort, what if we say 50-50? Half the time you get to be at ease and half the time you are trying to figure out how to find your way forward. And how would you say, like, what's your life? Like, what's your balance of comfortable and uncomfortable? Because you're also a parent, you are Mm -hmm. a business person, you are uh, you know, a, a, a data devourer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I will say on balance, this is probably as comfortable as my life has ever been. You know, that um, I, I, this is like the really nice thing about being 52, right? Is that you've kind of, um, if you're lucky and I've been very lucky, you know, you've got a lot kind of sorted out. Um, so um, I really like my husband. <laughs> We've been together a long time. That is very easy. Um, I have a daughter who's in college. She's thriving. That feels easy and fortunate. I have a daughter who's headed into the seventh grade. She's a riot. Um, again, all good fortune, and I know it. Um, so all of like just on the family life front. Our daughters are seven years apart. So we got one kid all the way out of little kid phase. And then we turned around and went right back into little kid phase. And so it's pretty new to us um, that we get up and drink our coffee in the morning on the weekends and um, are not bracing for a five-year-old to come busting in the door, you know, um, while we're still trying to like wake up. So we're really enjoying that aspect of family life of having just older kids because they're easier and that's really pleasant. Um, so in terms of family life, it's a very easy time because we are we just have older kids. And so that is quite a bit more comfortable than it's been. And we just had this very long stretch of little kids yeah. just because of the age groups, ages of our girls. Um, professionally, I've been working very, very hard, though I don't ever want to say I'm working harder than anyone else. I think people work really hard. Um but I'm fresh off my book tour, which was very busy and went on for a long time. And I did a lot of traveling. Um, and so professionally, things feel easier because the book, I think, is happily launched. And I have um, a little more ease coming in. 
But then the things I'm uncomfortable about, I still worry a ton about teenagers. I'm worried about their parents. I'm thinking about work to come. Um, so it's a good mix. There's definitely places where I'm trying to stretch and grow and do some thinking and some writing. I think it reminds yeah. me of when you said the 50-50 mix. And, and mm-hmm. thanks for sharing about your life because yeah, that's the part. Like you're inter- you're so interesting and you're balancing so many different aspects and like you're in it. You are in it deep. So to hear your balance, it's, it's, it's helpful. I also talk about, when I talk about my wife, I say, I like her. Like, yeah, I, I, I like love my him. wife, you know, but like is harder. Yeah. No, I like him a lot. <laughs> like likes the glue. Yeah. You know, love, love is the excitement, but uh, likes the glue. Um, but when it comes to the percentage piece, so 50, 50, so for a teenager and for anyone listening, you know, 50 comfortable, 50 uncomfortable, but then what I want to do is zoom out. So if we were to say like, let's take the great, let's take the age 13 to 23, right? And then let's take 23 to 33. Like if we were to make it chunks like that, well, 13 to 23, I would say it's probably like 80% uncomfortable, maybe 20%. Like there's this imbalance and then there's the patience part that complicates this. When you say patience part, meaning being patient with it or the patient with I'm life. Well, oh. the patience part, understanding that if my life is, if if I'm, if I'm, let's say I'm 16, right. And I'm feeling 80% discomfort and 20% comfortable, you know, during longer stretches, the idea that as I progress and as I go through life and my brain develops, I'm going to have more tools and the physiological capabilities to find more of that balance. Like the uncomfortable years tend to be front-loaded. Would, would you that's agree true. with that? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, and, and I think that looking over the course of a lifetime of when does it become like maybe 50, 52 is the magic number where it's like maybe 50, 50%, mm-hmm. or we can start to be 51% more comfortable and 50 and 49% uncomfortable. But I think it's like, this reflects and going back to the emotional as a teenagers, bouncing back to the introduction of the book of discomfort is part of life. And that's like, at least in my last 23 years, 25 years have been, you know, the motto has been getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like that is it. And it's okay to be uncomfortable. And that's normal and natural, right? Like that's, Yep. really what I would say at the core, like that's what your mission is communicating or your mission is to communicate that in many ways. Would you say that's accurate? hundred percent. I, I would say that a lot of this book is sort of a grand argument for welcoming distress back in, not being frightened of it, not trying to get rid of it right away. And also feeling fully equipped. As you mentioned, the end of the book is very, very practical. You know, right. once your teenagers are uncomfortable, which is going to happen no matter what you do, how can you, as an uh, you know loving adult, help them find their way through that? Right. So establishing that uncomfortable. So during the rest of this podcast, we could talk about uncomfortable. It's not a big deal. It's it's good to talk about uncomfortable, and I think that that's something that we really struggle with, and a lot of parents struggle with. Mm-hmm. Now, I had a letter the other day. I had a parent who said to me, "Who? Oh, hold on, my wife is calling. She loves you so much." Hey, Steph. Hi, Lisa is on right now. I'm on with Lisa recording the podcast. And I told her how wonderful. No, because 
No, no, but you love you're but weird saying how much you enjoy her. I was you're on. I'm I'm gonna leave this because it's fun. But like I, I stuff. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I don't know if you have anything you want to share. You know what? I really just I loved listening to your conversation with Ezra Klein. A friend actually sent it to me. And as soon as I started listening, I was like, oh my gosh, this is Lisa. So it was really, it was a great listen and it was, it was so eye-opening, especially the part about the phones and social media, which is so villainized, but you really sort of brought in my understanding, um, you know, in, in the sense that it's not just like the social media app and the impact of that, but really just like the general impact of the use of phones and how they just change our behavior, all of our behavior. And it has helped me because this is such a, this is a conversation we have every single day about our kids. And um, it was just really helpful to kind of hear how you, you pull that together and kind of wove the thread of like where it starts and how it impacts sleep and how it impacts social interactions. And it just made so much more sense. And it led to a really wonderful conversation with our kids. So um, that's the best part. That is the best part. Oh, that just gives me goosebumps. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Well, I can't wait to hear this conversation. So go back to it. But it's wonderful to connect with you and say hi. I'm really grateful for your work. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Steph. All right. Love you. Bye. So That's so fun. I don't think I've ever had that happen before. That was awesome. Well, you know, we just enjoy you because the thing is, <laughs> you know, we're parents and we are trying to figure this out. And I've never been a parent before. And I have a 17-year-old. And it's scary. And it's hard. Like I get emotional even when my wife called because like it is so hard to do what we do. It is so hard. It, it is, is so a really hard. challenging thing to do. And even the part, and you know, since Steph mentioned uh the part about phones and the use of phones and sleeping in that, I want the listeners to have more context. And I wasn't planning on going down that path right now, but just to like give us a quick little summary of of Lisa, how do you look at our phones, social media, in terms of what is healthy, what is unhealthy, and how as parents can we be great partners to help mm-hmm. support healthy use of technology? This is the question, right? I mean, this is like where we're really living right now, and it's such an important question. So let me start with the last thing you asked, which is how do we make ourselves great partners? And I know your audience skews told towards older, but I just want to say this at any opportunity it is so helpful to start slow. Um, So when a young person, when a tween usually is saying, I want a phone, I want a phone, that is a moment where parents have a lot of leverage. The tween will agree to anything at that point, and they should use that leverage. And if they feel that a phone makes sense, and I'll come back to why it might make sense, you can give a tween, I have done this in my own home, an iPhone that has no browser and no social media apps. And is basically a texting and photo machine. (laughs) And um, that can go very far. And the time when it may make sense to give a tween a phone is when that is how their peers are starting to connect with one another and not having access to texting of their own is getting in the way of their ability to be part of plans that are being made. That happens in communities. And for me, the way I think about it is social media can be very hard on kids we know that social isolation is brutal for teenagers, right? You you can't have that either. And so what you're looking for is this inflection point of how little tech does my kid need to stay meaningfully connected to their peer group? 
right? That's the question to ask. And texting can go very, very far for a long time for a lot of kids. So there's that. Then if you must, you can layer in social media slowly and you can monitor it because you're giving very little and you're giving it late in development. Like, so that's one way to think about it. The Once you're underway, once your kid is underway with a life that has digital technology as part of it, which is going to happen, it is our lives. I think it's really helpful to think in two categories of concern. One is what are they engaging with online? And what's out there is everything, right? From the best to the worst. So what we don't want is kids spending time or being exposed to toxic content, right? Whether they're seeing really upsetting things, when they're looking at distressing things, or if their feed is just populated with stuff that is not okay for kids, right? Or for anybody really, like eating disorder behavior, hate, you know, promotion of self-harm, like that's out there. We don't want that content in front of our kids. The other question is um, problematic use. So even if all they're looking at is cat videos, right? So the content isn't the issue. They should not be using technology in a way that undermines healthy development. And what we know is essential for healthy development. Okay, so what is essential for healthy development? Sleep, time in person with people, physical activity, helping out around the house and our community. So if you focus on those two buckets, right, they shouldn't be looking at toxic content and they shouldn't have their phone get in the way of the things that we know promote healthy development. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Yeah. I, I, I think it's so important not only to speak to the parents, but we also have, we have a lot of college students, um, you know, teenagers who listen. So I love that you're getting both sides because when you're talking to parents, it's like, it's like the hacks so that kids understand why their parents are saying and doing the things. And, you know, I think there's this awareness of if you're talking to parent to parents and you are a teenager, you know, you can really, you can get a lot out of this without being spoken directly to, which you probably will enjoy even more. But then if you're talking to a teenager, right, mm-hmm. if you're talking to a 17 year old, maybe senior in high school or freshman in college, when it comes to using their phone, using their devices. Um, can you just rattle off a few guidelines, healthy use, and will you include porn in there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. okay. So here's the thing that I think nobody is talking about enough. And I think teenagers understand better than most adults, but I actually want to even explicate it a little bit more, which is to talk about these algorithms that drive social media content. Mm-hmm. So the algorithms are, and I'm going to oversimplify it, but these are extraordinarily complex and extraordinarily powerful equations. And these are equations that have predictive power. And what they are predicting is what can we put in front of you on your feed next that it's going to make it really hard for you to stop looking at your feed. So just to do some math here, because I think the math is important, but this is again, an oversimplification of these are vastly more sophisticated equations that I'm even articulating. But on one side of the equation, we have what we call the independent variables. And then there's an equal sign, and then we have a single dependent variable. And the dependent variable is depends on all of these independent variables. The dependent variable is the thing we're putting in front of you next that makes it impossible for you to pull away. On the other side of the equation are all of these independent variables. The kinds of variables that are there are What have you looked at last? What did you spend a little extra time on? What did you comment on? What did you like? What have you searched for? What has everybody in your demographic ever searched for? What did you 
dislike? What did you scroll right past? So you can actually picture it like almost like thousands of independent variables that go out just miles with tons of data points informing them that are all distilling into this single, what are we going to show you next? And so when any of us experience this sense of like, we can't stop looking, it is not a comment on character. It is not a comment on willpower. What it is a comment on is that these are extraordinarily powerful equations working with massive data sets. The bigger the data set, the better the predictive power. And so what we have to know every time any one of us picks up social media or YouTube is that we are entering into a manipulation. We are entering into a universe that is by design has one goal and one goal only, which is to manipulate our attention to make it impossible for us to step away so that they can sell us more things and make more money. Like that's the whole deal. That's the whole deal, the whole deal. And so what I would say to all of us, teenagers included, is you got to decide how long and how much you want to be played. And you got to decide if what you're getting out of it is worth what you're losing in terms of time you wish you'd spent elsewhere. So what I would like, I think cynicism can feel like a pretty harsh word. I would say like a healthy cynicism, though. I think what the best thing about teenagers is their healthy like skepticism, but bordering on cynicism sometimes this is a great thing to bring to the social media universe. So that's how I would talk to teenagers about it. Yeah. And then, um, and um, I know it's kind of a rabbit hole, but. Um, I oh, want... and I didn't get to porn. We can yeah. talk about porn. Yeah. Well, I want to talk, I want to get to porn. Mm-hmm. And um, also, you know, the, the, the balance of the thing about you that I love is you say, and this is it's funny because I've had this conversation with my wife. Now, you know, Stephanie a little bit. Um, <laughs> We, we've had this debate about like social media can be really social and wonderful. And you know, like my 10 year old or nine year old is 10 in a, a few days. He uh, like, he'll, he'll do like his friends will collaborate and they'll build an amusement park or they'll do team uh, sports and they're all in different places. And, and then I have a discord and, you know, people ask questions and people answer. And it's like, and I'm doing this. Like, I feel like I'm actually serving and helping mm-hmm. in, in this manipulation maze. There are light sources that are providing positivity, which is the part I love that you talk about as well. But like, you know, how does someone know what is what is good? I, I guess it's how it feels, but like what's good, mm-hmm. what's not good, what's dangerous. And then and then. um the, the the porn piece as well. So I know yeah. I'm, like, I'm like mixing up everything today, but I think that's okay. This conversation is interesting. I mean, this is just like a real talk about. Well, like, you know, and there is good stuff. I mean, I will tell you, I think I use Instagram to disseminate information on a daily basis and find it a really useful place to put out, you know, bite-sized pieces of content that I hope is useful to families, right? Like I, I, there's, I'm not going to say it's all bad by any measure. Um, okay. As for pornography, so what is really tricky about porn is it's wide accessibility that, you know, you and I, when we were teenagers, we were curious about sex. Like if we could find a playboy or we could find like that was as good as a guy, right? I mean, we didn't have much to work with and it was pretty tame by comparison to anything that's out there now. And, you know, so it's not that there's something strange for teenagers to be curious about sex. Like that has been forever true. It's that when they go searching for content, what shows up is um, 
to quote the research studies on this, centered on themes of degradation and violence. And I think that's really important to just say those words, that the porn that is widely available um, and, you know, no credit card needed, no age verification required is by and large um, very violent, very intense, very overwhelming, very degrading of women in particular. Um, It is not, I think, what a lot of adults are imagining. They're hoping that they're young person will enjoy as a mutual and tender and loving sex life, right? I mean, I just think we need to say that. What's challenging here is that how 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 do teenagers know or how do you make a distinction between what's available um, online and the kind of love life that um, I think a lot of us would consider more mutual and tender and caring? So um, the porn is very often alarming and distressing and overwhelming, and at the exact same time, also quite titillating, which is a very complicated experience to have for any of us. And I think also a young person to be looking at something and know that it's like really not okay what's happening, but also to find it's kind of arousing, right? Like that's a very yeah. um, strange experience. And and I think a very tricky position to find oneself in. The other thing we know is that um, it can diminish the pleasure in real life sexual interactions, and it also can change the nature of real life sexual interactions. We have some data tracking things moving to a more violent place, um, a less mutually pleasurable place. Um, as a result, we think of you know a lot of porn exposure. So, minimally, minimally, porn either freaks out or, frankly, traumatizes um, some people who view it because it is quite. Often it looks a lot like rape. It looks like a very violent rape, but with the confusing um, information of like the woman gleefully seeming to enjoy the whole thing. But there's also beyond that, as there's persistent use of it, um, it really taking the fun out of being with people in real life and taking the sense of it being a mutually pleasurable and gentle and kind experience yeah. out of being together in real life. So if I'm listening, if I'm a listener and I'm like, well, you know, and for our teenagers who like that, even adults are like, you know, at least I understand that mm-hmm. and porn is this thing we have to be careful with, but like, is there a healthy use of it? Like, what mm-hmm. if I, what if I watch sensual porn mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. things that are not violent in nature, but mm-hmm. are, you know, it, it, that are examples of the, of a healthier lifestyle like is that okay like is that yeah. is that still dangerous or damaging um not necessarily right and it's interesting there there was some you know dark turns within it but the tv show normal people was a really interesting um show and i'm not sure what ages it's prescribed for it's certainly right. not a not a kid show not a kid show right. but i was watching it and i was like okay Okay, like there's a lot of sex in this, and there's something incredibly lovely about the sex. And I was like, you know what? If kids are going to watch something, or not kids, you know, right? But, you know, for for people who are interested in looking at the stuff, I would prefer. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I never hear people ask that question of like, and 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 I'm you know listening to the answer and asking the question of like, is there is there a healthy use of, of pornography? And I, and it's even an uncomfortable question for me to ask because, Mm -hmm. you know, if the answer is 
is yes or you know what what is healthy what isn't healthy so and i think this also goes into you know so many young people use pornography and drugs and alcohol as a way to numb the pain of rejection mm. and it's a pleasure center and mm-hmm. you know i think speaking to okay well if engaging in this could be if it can be healthy which you know just to reinforce like is there a healthy use and then when is something unhealthy um you know i would love to understand that yeah i mean i think what's really challenging here is it's not my sense that what is easily accessible online is the soft erotica right. we may be imagining right and and i think i tell this story actually in untangled um which came out a while ago of um i was working on that book and a mom in my community who i really like and trust said i think you should i think you should go look at what the ninth grade boys are looking at. And she sent me to Pornhub. And I um, I was like, you know what? I'm, a, I'm an adult. I'm here doing research. Like, I'm just like, it's my job to understand the phenomenology of what's in front of the teenagers that I'm caring for. So I type in pornhub.com and like, really Harlan, I mean, I was so naive. I was like, surely they're going to ask for a credit card. Like surely they're going to check to make sure I'm not a kid. Nope, nope, nope. Um, nine videos pop up and I have this giant screen for writing nine videos um, all running simultaneously of honest to God, the roughest stuff I've ever seen in my entire life. And I was like, I mean, I having had two children myself, I had to shut it down after about 10 seconds. I was so overwhelmed and disturbed by it. And I am, I am a clinical psychologist. I operate in the world as it truly is. I am not naive or rude. And so I think that's the question. It's like, what are kids most likely to encounter? Probably not the kind of, if there is such a thing, probably not the kind that we're hoping for. Right. And you're talking about like, you know, a show rather than something on the internet that's really raw and yeah. uncensored. And because I, I think that that's, you know, there's there's so many things that, that we're all trying to figure out, that teenagers are trying to figure out. Yeah. And that that part is you know we we should do a whole gosh I hope I hope I'll get you I'll get the chance to visit with you again because like even that part of like how do they package um you know porn and and sensuality and how do you have healthy relationships and I know you do this with your podcast so for those of you who don't know Lisa has a wonderful podcast mm-hmm. where she talks about a lot of these issues where she goes topic by topic and um I think it's 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 a wonderful podcast because you get more into these questions that like, mm-hmm. I just want to talk to you for 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Like I want to do an hour on healthy relationships. I want to do an hour on, you know, how somebody can even, you know, kiss. And mm-hmm. I get people who write to me from all over the world and said, you know, I'm, I, I don't know how to kiss someone or, uh, you know, I don't know how to be intimate because mm-hmm. um, no one teaches them these things. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying that, um, they're learning it in, in they're learning it in in ways that can be damaging. Yeah. So, all right, I'm getting sidetracked. Um, I have so many things that we need to talk about. So I need to like focus up on the college piece. So we're going to switch. Okay, we're going to go back into this whole college piece. All right, and and I got a lot of questions. So I'm going to really try. I'm going to try and go through these as efficiently as I can. Okay. So we have. Lots of people who just graduated, lots of parents who are freaked out about their kids living these lives, independent of them, leaving the nest. One thing you mentioned that I love hearing is the stable parent. And I'll 
start with a quick story that someone shared with me. I was at a school and the student came up to me and said, I'm so nervous about all these changes ahead. My parents are so worried mm-hmm. that I find myself having to reassure my parents and parent mm-hmm. them. And I don't have mm-hmm. space to share what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. I offer some advice, but for a teenager who's in that place, I would love for you to, you know, how can they guide them and also with an understanding of the steady parent? Yeah. So, um, you know, I talked about this. um, I've talked about it a lot of places like that, you know, our gift that we can give kids is to try to be a steady presence, right? To try to be available in that way. And it's hard when they're anxious for us not to feel anxious. Um, but to the degree that we can, it is such a value because like you, your work centers on like, there's so much disruption in adolescence and young adulthood, like that they really need the, those of us who are middle-aged to seem pretty boring and pretty <laughs> sturdy, right. Can help reassure them. But if I think about when a young person needs to talk with their parents and the parent seems to be activated by it, and that's making it hard. I think there may be room for the young person to try to give that parent a little feedback and maybe in advance to anticipate it, to say, look, um, I'm feeling pretty uneasy about this thing and it might make you guys uncomfortable, but here's what I need from you guys. I need you guys to actually, your anxieties, I need you to deal with them elsewhere so that you can help me deal with mine, right? You can do that. And it's funny, um, you you can just sometimes say like, here's where I think it might go and I really want to talk with you guys. So could we have it go this way, not that way? And and I would just encourage young people to do that. And what what seems central to that is acknowledging that it may be anxiety provoking for the parent or the caregiver, right? And so to say, look, I get it. It may make you anxious for me to bring this up, and I I um I would be so appreciative if if we could just focus for a minute on the piece that I'm so anxious about because I want to be able to talk with you about this. Um, maybe a way to get that conversation going. Yeah. I love that. I think that teenagers need help coaching their parents. Yeah. I mean, it's like we talk about a steady presence and a parent who has a baseline of what's normal can be much more grounded and comfortable. But for children who have parents who are all over the place, you having those tools, which, and I, I think a, a student or a parent, a, a, a teenager or college student is like, I don't want to have to like help my parents. Like, I don't want to have to help my parents understand they're the parents. Mm-hmm. Why can't they just figure this out? <laughs> right. And, and, and my answer is it's really hard um, for parents who are freaked out, who are worried because there are lots of things for parents to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um that parent who says, you know, Lisa, I really want to be a steady presence, mm-hmm. but I am a wreck. Mm-hmm. I am a wreck. Mm-hmm. How can I be a steady presence when two thirds of, of, of female college students are hopeless, you know, are mm-hmm. feeling hopeless. Yeah. And there's uh, suicide is, is mm-hmm. at a, is it continues to, to, to grow in numbers and all of the data. Mm-hmm. I'd be a steady presence, Lisa. So it's very hard. I mean, we're getting a lot of of very alarming information and it should be taken seriously. I mean, and I will, you know, we are facing an adolescent mental health crisis. There's no question about it. And some of that is rising rates. And a lot of that is that we just don't have a very large workforce to care for these kids. And so um, it's sort of like a two-pronged problem, both that need increased and also our workforce can't 
increase at that rate. So we, that's created a real problem. I think that um, you got to know your kid. And if you feel like your kid's okay, don't worry about what the data say. You know your kid. Um, I will also say the reporting of the data tends to be quite negative, um, tends to be tipped towards, um, frankly, a very clickable headline. Um, Harlan, in February of 2023, this year, um, the CDC put out a report about distress in teenagers, and it was really alarming, and the girls in particular looked horrible, horrible in it. And what I think got lost in so much of that coverage is that those data were collected in the fall of 2021. They were asking about mood over the previous year, and they were asking about self-reported low mood for a period of two weeks or more over the previous year. Okay, fall of 2021, kids were entering their third school year disrupted by the pandemic. They were incredibly miserable. Either they were going back unmasked and freaked out about their safety, going back with back with masks, freaked out about how it was going to play out socially, or they weren't going back yet and they were freaked out, or they were going back, things felt great and they didn't trust it. They were like, it's all going to get pulled away. So it was a really horrible time asking about the previous year of mood. And so of course the numbers were horrible. They could also have been reported as, you know, in that framing, right? With a lot more framing yeah. around it. And and so um, right now what we're seeing is we're seeing everything, right? Lots of kids are thriving. Lots of kids right. have new problems. Lots of kids, you know, so like, I, I just, what I want parents to know is that the reporting is alarming. Right. And that shouldn't, I don't want parents on the ceiling and I'll tell you why it makes them less able to do what they want to do, which is to be there for their kids. Right. Right. And and I I think the data also doesn't say if someone's feeling hopeless in the past 12 months, um, does that same person feel hope? Because Mm -hmm. you could Mm -hmm. feel hopeless in one moment and you can also feel a lot of hope. So that's where that data, I think there's a hole in it because we don't know those students who are feeling those, those young people who are feeling those feelings, it doesn't mean they're feeling it all the time because it doesn't say how frequently are you feeling? It says, have you felt hopeless in the previous 12 months? Yes, exactly. And like the previous 12 months from the fall of 2020 to the fall of 2021, I mean, my gosh, like it's the worst time I've ever seen for teenagers. Well, what's interesting, because so there's that piece then, and I don't want to get bogged down in the data too much because I I have to get to our rapid fire Q&A. But this other piece I'll share with you, because I'd love to, I'd love to make sense of it through the American College Health Association. I've been tracking their data for, you know, they had a wonderful, uh, it was a wonderful way of tracking it. They had this great graph where it talked about like from 2012 all the way through 2019. And even in 2019, we were seeing those numbers of like 52% of students feeling a sense of hopelessness versus like 42%. Mm-hmm. So we've seen that steady increase, but what they don't talk about is all of the, the, the part of being hopeless can actually be helpful in being hopeful. I mean, would you, would you, and I know I'm kind of yeah. Really say a little more. Side. Well, <clears throat> if we were to go go to discomfort is part of being mm-hmm. a human being, and I can tell you, like, if I'm going to be honest, maybe I had a few minutes, you know, where I was overtired, where 
I was, my pants were too tight or I had a business thing go uh, the wrong way, or I was worried about something where for a flash, I would feel a sense of hopelessness, you know, like, but I'm one of the most positive people in the world and I have so much hope. And I, and, you know, I talked to my therapist, I'm like, you know, I had this moment where, you know, I just felt so, you know, I just felt like so dark for a moment and I didn't like the way that felt. And his response was, you know, that's, that's okay. Like, that's okay to have that moment. It's really what you do with those moments. That's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. So like if my kid's feeling hopelessness, I, I almost feel like they're normal. Well, so let's, let's, there's two ways to slice this. So one is what your clinician said, and this is something I work really hard to bring across in the book, right? That mental health is not about feeling good. It's about feelings that fit the moment and probably even more important, managing them well. So do you feel hopeless? And you're like, okay, I feel hopeless. I'm going to go spend all my, you know, run up all my credit cards and like, you know, go get drunk. Like that's a problem. I feel hopeless. Okay. Well, what can I apply myself to? What do I have control over? Why don't I, you know, focus on those things for now? That's a great outcome, right? So it's it's a lot, it all pivots really on what happens next. So you have the uncomfortable feeling. And then the question is, do you cope in a way that, you know, brings relief, but creates all sorts of new problems? Or do you cope in a way that brings relief and does no harm, puts things on a better path? The other thing that no clinician can hear the hope, word hopelessness without thinking about is the possibility of suicide, right? That that's why people die by suicide is that they feel like there's nothing that can be done. And so... One thing I want any adult around a young person who's expressing a sense of hopelessness, um, adults should say something like, I hear you. I have to ask a question, right? I hear that you feel hopeless. Are you having any thoughts of harming yourself or ending your life, right? Like, is it that kind of hopeless? And you need an answer to that question. Now, the good news is overwhelmingly kids are going to be like, no, no, I just had a very rough day. I don't, I'm not thinking about that, but you need to get to that if hopelessness is in the mix, because that's why people die by suicide is that they feel like there's nothing that can be done. Right. And that's, I mean, that's so helpful. And when I was feeling my sense of hopelessness, I wasn't having thoughts of harming myself. Mm -hmm. I was just in a really dark place for a moment thinking, why does this have to be so difficult? Mm -hmm. Oh, like I just, and it was, and it was momentary. It was, it was a moment. And, um, I think even the the use of the word hopeless and hopelessness, I love that you encourage supporters to ask that question and for friends to ask the question. You know, if you have a friend who's hopeless or in a dark place, because I think the word hopeless, we get caught up in the wording. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have a friend who's in a really dark place, is, is it okay for a friend to ask a friend? Are you planning on- Absolutely, absolutely. And say, look, I heard what you said. So I need to ask this question and you can ask the same question. Are you having thoughts of harming yourself or ending your life? Yeah. You know? like, right. And you can ask it just like that. And, you know, it's important for us to say, like, I know that it can feel like a very strange question or hard question to ask. And I know people can worry that they're going to give the person the idea who didn't have the idea. We have research showing you're not giving them the idea. And we also have research showing that if a person's really thinking about it, they're glad you asked. So ask. I think that's, that's so important to ask. Okay. We're going to do speed round. Okay. okay. All right. So if you're up for this. Okay. So some of the big, okay. Speed round, two things involved with this speed round. First is I want to share with you a mental health transition plan that I have come up with that I'm sharing because mental health is so important. I think everyone should have a transition plan mm-hmm. and I want to make sure that you 
like my transition plan. Sure. I'll give you feedback. Yeah. Right. Like, this is what you do and you're the best. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the mental health transition plan, the idea is for every student who's going to college or in a pivot point in their life to have this very clear plan of being intentional mm-hmm. about what's going to happen between their ears. So number one is identify what you want to happen this year in college. So you have to want something because wanting is linked to hope. So if you want something, there's something you're driving towards, whether it's social, emotional, physical, financial, academic, you can list whatever come, you know, top of mind. I want to make friends. Okay. (laughs) So you got to identify something. Then what makes you uncomfortable about what it is that you want? Give yourself permission. Good. Give yourself permission to feel. So when it comes to friends, I'm, I, I've lived in the same city my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, no one likes me. I'm awkward. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I've 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 never had my group. Um, mm-hmm. All these things. I didn't think about making friends when I went to college, and I didn't make friends mm-hmm. until I figured out I had to be intentional about making friends. Just mm-hmm. something that causes a lot of anxiety and stress. Okay, so you're going to list those things and make you uncomfortable. That's number two. Number three, you're going to identify specific people on campus and off campus who could be in your corner to help you to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. My therapist, my medical team, um, someone in the counseling center, a coach, an advisor, a spiritual leader, but really getting granular and identifying the exact person. Okay? Mm-hmm. How, are we doing okay so far? So far, so good, yeah. Okay, then it's identifying the specific places where mm-hmm. on this particular campus can I be accepted and included and get the support I need simply by showing up. You know, I don't have to apply, right. I don't have to be admitted, I show up and they go, we're so Welcome. happy you're here, yeah. right? Yeah. Like everybody needs that place. Yeah. They walk in, they go, Lisa, yep. Lisa, ah, oh, right. Yeah. So many people don't have that and are intentional about that. Let me help you. And then the last one is to actually reach out to the people in the places who can help you before you need it. I like that. I like that. So, so that you have that. Okay. What do you okay. So here's what I would add. And and you have it, but I would actually put a bigger framing and then I'd add a piece, which is there will be very hard and painful days in college. Like, you know, that is presumed. And back to what we're saying, it's about how you cope. So who are the people you turn to on those days? Where are the places you go on those days? And then I think the thing I would also add is, what independent positive coping works for you? Is it going to the gym? Is it, you know, listening to a particular playlist? Is it rewatching all of, um, you know, oh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, right? I mean, like whatever it is, like what is your personal independent of the depending on anyone else right. strategy system for when you've had the world's worst day, what can you offer yourself? I love I love that reminder. So I usually link that into patience of what do you have independent of other people and other yeah. and other things that can give you joy. Yeah, or just or so actually. So what I would say is either give you joy or help you regain a sense of emotional equilibrium. Right. So not necessarily make you blissfully happy, but help pull you out of a you know a lousy day. Ooh, I love that. What do you have? Because right. And when I talk to when I'm doing live events and and I'll see someone who's a runner or. They're a writer or an artist. It's like you can play your guitar, you can sing a song, you can go for a run. And then there's that piece of with the transition to college, there's like three to six months of runway where Mm -hmm. you really can't depend on other people to be your source of 
And I love that emotional equilibrium. Yeah. I like setting that as the bar. Um, I think that happy is wonderful when it happens, but it's also very high bar joy, like emotional equilibrium. Like every day, that's all we're trying to do is maintain a sense of emotional equilibrium. That's awesome. That's great. Okay. This is, this is, that's wonderfully helpful. Oh, good. I'm going to, I'm going to modify that. Excellent. And I have your stamp of approval with what I've shared. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here's actually, here's the, here's the problem because I've written a lot. I'm an editor. For the second question, a way that I often phrase it clinically, of like, okay, what is it that you want? Yeah. The second question I often phrase it as, what do you think might get in the way? Ooh, I like that. And and sort of framing it that way gives it a little more activation, I think. And it may be, it may be that I get in the way because I'm, you know, reluctant. It may be that I'm not actually academically prepared, you know, like, but I think that kind of like naming the barriers can be a way to home in on it a little what bit. What might get in the way? Okay. So I'll use that. Is that okay if I use that language? Absolutely. Okay. Take it. Take it. It's all yours. Okay. I love it. I think that's wonderful. Um, Okay. So I I don't know if you have a hard stop. If you do, I'm going to respect your time. I've got about 10 more minutes and then I got to wrap up. Yeah. Okay. We'll do our speed round. Okay. Okay. Because I wanted to get our emotional transition, our mental, our, our mental health transition plan. Cause I just think that's so important. I love it. Um, Mark Brackett, you know, his work, are you, you like Mark? I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. I'm excited. I'm going to, um, I like Mark. And for those who don't know, Mark is all about feeling emotions and allowing yourself to have emotions and labeling these emotions. And it's great. Okay. Let's just dig in. And I want to get your take on these, on these uh, answers. Okay. It's two weeks before college and my kid doesn't want to go. They're having incredible anxiety and they are having second thoughts. Should I force them to go mm-hmm. or should I allow them to stay home? That's a really big, t- complex question. Um, well, so here are the things I would ask in response. One is, have they basically seemed ready and demonstrate a great deal of readiness and they're now having a moment of cold feet? And then if that's the answer, I would say, like, what could help them feel better? Like, would it be visiting the college? Would it be talking to someone who's been there? Like, is there sort of a half step that could happen between pulling the plug and sending the kid? Right. That's what I would say. The flip of it is if they have been skywriting that they are not ready, you know, that they are not a kid who can go to summer camp or have a sleepover at somebody else's house, or they are not demonstrating that they are taking good care of themselves at all. And their anxieties may be very well founded, that they are really developmentally not ready to go to college. I would take that golden opening to call the college, ask them to hold the spot and give that kid another year to grow up. Nothing wrong, especially because of COVID, they missed out on so many life experiences and that level of maturity and independence may not be there and yep. their life will still be amazing. Okay. Love, love, love. Okay. Uh, I've been at school for two weeks and I am feeling incredible homesickness mm-hmm. and I want to leave. Mm, okay. Again, is there a half step, right? That's that's the thing that so often we want to avoid extreme responses because anything we do has unintended consequences. And so you want to do the smallest possible thing that might make the whole thing better. So um, it's very natural to miss home. And then the question is, what would help you feel better besides going home? Would it be a weekend home? Would it be talking to your high school friends? Would it be going for a run? Like, is there something in between? And the other thing that feels really essential to say in this cultural moment where there's so much anxiety about negative emotions, being very, very sad and longing for home is painful. It will not hurt you. 
that we are all built to withstand negative emotions. Every one of us is designed to be able to find our way through negative emotions. And so the presence of the negative emotion itself is not on its own ground for, grounds for concern. It means you got a loving family that you were very fortunate to grow up with and you miss them. Of course you miss them. But by itself, that is not a sign that there's something wrong or that there's something you know, that needs to be intervened on in a very aggressive way. It's a win for the parents. Your kids yeah. actually miss home. Like you. <laughs> They're sick because they love you so much and yeah. love everything about it. They're physically ill. So congratulations. You did a good job. Okay. Uh, this is from a student. I've never partied before. Mm. Um, I want to experiment. How do I know how much to experiment and when is too, when is it too much? Okay. The magic word here is safety. <laughs> it is too much if it's unsafe. So there's lots of ways for alcohol. I'm assuming that's mostly what's being referred to in partying, but obviously drugs can be involved. Lots of ways for them to be unsafe. Um, certainly with alcohol, ingesting a great deal can kill you, right? Ingesting some can mean that you don't have good judgment in a situation that becomes dangerous. Um, so it's too much if it's unsafe. So that's that's use the measure. Like if you want to experiment, you got to keep it on the side of safe. So either that means the context you're in when you experiment and certainly the volume you experiment with, it's got to be safe. Wonderful. I'm a transgender student. My family doesn't know. I'm scared because of everything that's been happening in our country. How do I feel safe when I go to college? I hear you and I am sorry. And this is a frightening time. Harlan, you said something earlier in this episode that I think is so critical, which is colleges have all sorts of places and resources and organizations and groups. And what I would say to any student who's a sexual or gender minority and who's feeling uneasy is go find the organization, either formalized by the university or informally developed by students, um, where you will not be alone, where you will have a strong sense of belonging, and you will be able to share your worries with people who you know know exactly what you're talking about and maybe have navigated them a little while longer than you have and also find a group um, with whom you can feel safe. How important is sleep, Lisa? I'm a 18 year old who's going to college. You know, we don't sleep a lot, but I'm really doing well. I think you're wrong. I wish I were wrong, but I'm not. Because <laughs> I would love to sleep less. But here's the thing. And the reason why I will say I know I'm not wrong, there's nothing actually easier for us to study than the impact of sleep. And the reason for this is that we bring people into a lab and we give them a gorgeous night of sleep, best sleep ever. And then we have them fill out all sorts of measures, like how, you know, how good is their memory? How good is their attention? How good is their sense of humor? How quickly do they think? How um, inventive is their thinking? How funny are they? And then we bring them back in the lab and we keep them up all night and then we give them the same measures and they bottom out. <laughs> so we like, we know, we know. And what I didn't mention is, and they also have more energy when they've slept. And they also have a much, much, much more powerful immune system when they have slept. Um, and they are less likely to get injured or find themselves in an accident if they've slept. So here's the bottom line on sleep. It is the glue that holds human beings together. You probably need eight or nine hours still at this point in life. 
And if we could create a drug that does every single thing that sleep does, gives people energy, intelligence, attention, constant, you know, creativity, the capacity to concentrate, um, boosts their immune system, makes them funnier, makes them like themselves better, makes them like everybody else better. It would be the most valuable drug we have ever invented. All you have to do is go to bed. Okay. Go to bed. Go to bed and get good sleep. Like, you know, keep your technology from waking you up all night. Um, be in a room that's cold enough, dark enough, quiet enough. Um, it makes a huge difference. I want to get help, but I don't have money and I don't know how to get help. And I'm scared. How do I do this? Yeah. Okay. So if you're on a college campus, you are in good luck because college campuses all have counseling centers. Now, the reality is the counseling centers tend to be increasingly focused on caring for kids who are in a crisis, which makes sense. But the counseling centers also tend to have a very good sense of the local network of clinicians and may be able to connect you with clinicians in the area, which then gets to the issue of payment. One question I would have is you could ask the college counseling center if they're not able to care for you there for free. You know, if there's a clinician who has a sliding scale, who takes some percentage of their cases at a very low fee. The other thing I will say, you know, it depends on where you are in terms of what it costs hourly to see somebody. But I have cared for young people where they got a small job. And they use that small job to pay for their own therapy because they were over the age of 18 and they did not want to deal with their family about the fact that they were in therapy. And so I did, we did two things. I negotiated a lower fee with them and yet, you know, still charge them something because it's important that there be some value placed upon the work itself. And they got themselves a job and they used that money to pay for their therapy. And, you know, I think any of us who were, lucky enough to have really good therapy when we were young can tell you it is the investment of a lifetime. I'm lying to my parents about my grades. They don't understand. They don't listen to me. I don't think I can tell them the truth. Um, the truth is here, right? If they don't have access to their, your grades, they will never have access to your grades. This is a secret you will be able to keep. That doesn't feel good, right? To be um, having them ask and telling them something that's not true. For me, the much bigger issue is what are you going to need these grades for? And is it going to turn into an issue between you and you as opposed to an issue between you and your parents? So yeah, it's a pain that this is weighing on you, but I would actually say that's probably the least of your concerns if your grades are a problem so much so that you feel like you need to lie to your parents about them, I would put most of your energy into trying to sort out what you need to do to get your grades in order so that you have all the choices you want. I'm dating someone and they want to have sex. I've never had sex before. I'm curious, how do I know if it's right for me? Hmm. I don't know that there's any magical way to know that um, it's going to be a good idea here are some things that you would really want to be looking for. One is, do you want it? Let's start there. Right? If you want to have sex, and that would probably point things in the direction of yes. Then the second question is, does the person you're with want it? The answer to this appears to be yes. 
the third question, do you both want it? It would, and you know, if we, this is how I want you to think it through. That would, sounds like a yes. Then the next question is, what are the downsides that could arrive and how do you keep those from happening? So there are things like pregnancies, STIs, but there's also misunderstandings, right? So maybe for you having sex means, okay, now we're a couple and we're exclusive. If that's what it means for you, you should check with your partner to make sure it's what it means to them too. Um, it might mean that you feel a heavier emotional investment in the relationship. And so when it ends, it will be more painful to you, right? You want to be clear-eyed about that, but evaluate it in that way. And you can do that. You can do this for handholding, right? Do I want it? Does the person I'm with want it? Do we both want it? What are the downsides? So evaluate it in that way. It works across all forms of physical interaction. I'm out down to my last two. My friend drinks too much and they don't listen to me. I'm worried about them. What can mm-hmm. I do to help them? Well, there's a lot happening there. One question is whether or not your friend has a substance abuse problem. And I know that those sometimes can feel hard to tease apart from just college partying, but it's also my experience that even in the most hard driving, out of control fraternities, they can tell you which guys are the most out of control and out of control in a different kind of way than the rest of them who are drinking way more than they probably should be. So I think one question is whether or not there's a substance use issue. And um, if you think that may be true, it may be worth broaching with your friends saying like, I love you and I care about you and I'm worried that you're drinking is out of control and that you're not able to control it. See what they say. If they say, you know, I don't want to, or I can, you can say like, show us, right? Like show us you can, like, I would feel better. Show me you can like, you know, that feels like a heavy burden though to place on the young person who's concerned about their friend. Um, the other thing to say is your drinking is scary for me and makes me worried about you. And I'm wondering if you have any worries yourself right? To get the conversation started that way. But the bottom line, and this feels so key, is being at college means that you're able to take good care of yourself, or that's what it should mean. And it also means that for everybody around you. And if you are with someone who's not able to take good care of themselves, it starts to be one of those things where the compact of their independence is not being held up from their end. And it may be that adults need to be involved, whether it's adults on the hall adults in the dean's office. You can also get an independent consult at your school, right? You don't have to tell who you're coming to talk about, but go talk to the adults. But it's not, um, you're not ratting someone out if they're not doing their end of the deal, which is they're in college, they should be able to take good care of themselves. Along the same lines, my friend is dating someone who's toxic and treats them terribly they're so stuck in a unhealthy relationship and they won't listen to any of us. How can we help them? Mm. So it's scary because these can actually not just go from psychological abuse to physical, they can move to physical abuse and they don't always, but relationships that end up physically just damaging also almost always start, you know, always start with the kind of what's being, you know, gestured at here. What I would say is there's a wonderful website called join is the group is called one love the website is join one love and it is a website very much oriented to helping people have safe and healthy relationships and there's an entire section of the website about if you are worried about a friend who is in an unhealthy relationship and just for um context it is the website started by a family whose daughter was killed by her college boyfriend 
And so it's, you know, very much um, aims at college age students and it's deeply thoughtful and it's extremely well done. That is wonderful to have that resource. Just to end this on a happy note, Lisa, Mm -hmm. um, for those who are now on the precipice of starting this new chapter for the students, for the parents, what is your parting advice for all of these incredible people who are starting this life-changing journey? All right. One of the greatest truths in all of psychology, change equals stress. It will be stressful for you. It'll be stressful for your college student. That is not a sign that it's not going well. It's probably a sign it's going perfectly, but I don't want anybody getting stressed about the fact that the transition to college is a stressful one. That's part. It's good. If it's not stressful, then there, you know, there probably might be something wrong. Like it's good. So you should yeah. welcome into your life. And Lisa, your your latest book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. I love this book. Highly recommended for any parent. And also I think for any of your, you know, any college students, any teenagers, like read this stuff. It's really wonderful. And um, you're terrific. You're great. Is there anything you wanted to just clarify or revisit? So thanks for being so generous. I know, um, gosh, you're just the best. Thank you so much. This is such a pleasure and I'm so grateful for the work you do. And um, it's always a pleasure to talk. Well, thank you. And I cannot wait to do it again. You, you're just so generous. So thank you. And uh, we will, we will, to be continued, we will keep doing it. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Sure. Wonderful. Thanks.